Welcome to UK Motor Talk. This week, we're taking a break from the SMMT's testing day. But don't worry, part two of that will be out next week. Later in this episode, we'll be at Brooklyn's Museum to hear about the Century of Speed event that we'll be attending on 17th of May. And also chatting at the Wings Museum with a Morgan owner about what it is that makes the mark so special. But first, Dave has dashed over to Farnborough to, as its website describes it, the world's number one clean energy and electric vehicle show. So no pressure there then. Fully charged live. And he's naturally gravitated to a vehicle that we've all been particularly keen to find out more about. So I'm here with Jess. We're just by the ID Buzz stand. And as anyone who's listened to UK Motor Talk over the last few weeks will know, we're big fans of the ID Buzz. And in the flesh, it looks fantastic. You are getting an awful lot of people coming to see this, aren't you? Yes, it's been really busy over the last couple of days. Um, Yesterday, we literally could not get around the vehicle for anyone to take a photo. Um, And today, it's just yeah, great to actually get to speak to customers and... uh, yeah, get them show around the vehicle. It's been a long time in the making, hasn't it? It's been teased in the press, there's been spy shots, there's been all sorts of renderings, but now to actually see this thing in the metal, what sort of people are you getting coming to see it? Are people serious about wanting to buy it or are they just intrigued at the look of the, the bus's back? No, um, there are people that are literally ready to put their money down um, if they can. Um, people have already picked colours um, and it's actually been a really varied mix of people. So we've had a lot of families. Um, we've had businesses that are obviously looking to either purchase the cargo um, or the people because it just makes such a big statement. Um, various different families and um, even a lot of people that have adult children that want to, you know, they say that they go on holiday still with their family. Can they fit three adults in the back? testing that out Um, and it's just generally been so positive Um, and going back to what you were saying about the concept I think people are really pleasantly surprised that it actually looks like the concept it's really not that far off Um, and yeah it's just really positive to be honest it's a great looking thing and I think Volkswagen are basically going to sell as many as you can make Um, you mentioned there's going to be a cargo van Um, is the plan that that gets released at the same time as a normal combi van so um, actually production started for the left hand drive cargo a couple of weeks ago Um, so that's actually been the first coming off the line which is really exciting Um, right hand drive production starts at the same time for both our people and um, our cargo variant Um, we plan to open for order for both of them in the summer there might be a few you know a couple of weeks difference um no specifics but um yeah apart from that around the same time we'll be planning to open border and again like i said customers just want to get their hands on one so yeah I, i'm as keen as anybody else um, once the queue's gone down a bit which i don't think it's actually likely to do but what are the main selling points do you think of the new bus so the best, I guess the best and key bit is that it's based off our proven MEV platform. So um, the platform that is currently on the ID3 and ID4. Some of the benefits that you'll get off that is, um, as you'll notice, it's a bit hard to describe on a podcast, um, but there's wheels on every corner, basically. The overhangs are really short, which means that the turning circle is tiny. Um, what else helps with that is that it's rear wheel drive. So obviously we've got more movement in the front and it's actually an 11 meter um, turning circle. I experienced that for myself yesterday, um, not with the buzz, but someone driving an ID3, one of my colleagues, um, I was um, behind them, 
We had to go around a whole mini roundabout. They made it round in one and I couldn't in my ICE vehicle. Um, so I got to experience actually how good that is. So for urban environments, the buzz is amazing. And when we compare it um, next to vehicles of a similar size, um, some of the Stellantis group, A segment vehicles, so like the Bilingo, for example, turning circles around 11.4. And some of the B transporter, so when we're talking like um, the Citroen e um, Space Tourer, um, that's like 12.4 to 12.9. So um, a massive difference and really a huge benefit. Buzz will also come with plug and charge, which means that the vehicle can literally be plugged in um, to a charge point and it does everything else for you. So the authentication and the billing process all happens in the background. Currently, Ionity and BP Pulse are guys that um, are actually on board with that and there's quite a few others. And we'll see more obviously joining that, but what a great feature to have. Um, and it's actually capable of bi-directional charging as well. I know you can't say specifically, but is there a rough timescale for when we might actually finally be able to get ourselves in one on the roads and see them out and about in Britain? So, as I said, production starts um, in summer and we will start to see vehicles arriving in the UK towards the end of the year. Um, so in dealerships, so you get it behind a wheel, test drive in there. So I'm here on the electric classic cars stand, which, as anyone who's a, a fan of vintage voltage will know, is the company in Wales that converts classic cars, hence the name, to electric. And we stood in front of a DeLorean, which I think we both agree is probably the car that should have been electrified from the start. This is the car it should have been with an electric uh, drivetrain. This has got a Tesla conversion, so there's a, a small Tesla unit in the back, gives it 300 horsepower, direct drive straight to the straight to the real wheels um, and it, it, it's made it much easier to drive the owner of this car uses it as his daily driver wow so you'll probably see there's a bit of sort of mud on the tires and things because he, he does use it every day as it should be this, these the garage queens basically don't interest us at all the cars are there to be driven aren't they just not used as a, a thing to look at which is why people are converting them to electric in the first place so they can keep driving them and using them for the foreseeable future yeah we find a lot of um customers um, have had cars for many years and when they look at this sort of annual mileage they're hardly getting any mileage out of them and that's because they're difficult to drive or unreliable or for whatever reason and you find that once they've had the car converted it just opens up the use and they end up I mean there's, there's a, a guy on the stand here today Rob who's a customer and he's got a, a Carmen gear and he was telling me that he did seven eight thousand miles in his car last year so it does make the post-conversion it does make them far more usable and I think people get a lot more mileage a lot more use out of them which again is exactly how it should be and when you've got a DeLorean you want to get out and show people what you've got and actually use the performance that again it should have had from the outset I presume it can do 88 miles an hour plus can't it I think it'd probably do 188 <laughs> miles an hour now yeah no no tracks of flame <laughs> coming out of the back well you were telling me obviously people will know you anyone who's got an interesting cars will know you for the the show vintage voltage on quest but you're also to me you've got a very very successful youtube channel yeah we've just been sort of um pushing the youtube channel since uh the start of this year and um it's really taken off and we've got uh, just just shy of seventy thousand subscribers now and i think in in march we had nearly 1.5 million views so we try our best to um, release a video every week 
and that's a mix of technical talks because we know a lot of our um, uh, fans from the show and people who are interested in classic cars and conversions are very interested in the technical side so we do a few videos about battery technology and comparing it to petrol and we also try and um, do a video review a sort of road test of every vehicle that comes through the workshop so um, yeah so if you're interested in classic cars or electric vehicles or just technical the technical side of it um, you know hopefully we've got something there to interest everybody the TV show does that get in the way of the actual business of, of electric classic cars I think it does to some extent yes I mean they try um, you know and be as intrusive as least intrusive as possible but I think that it does I mean you know they, they, some of the guys are working and they've got a camera crew floating around them and they do say you know could you do that again so there is some disruption but they try their best to sort of minimize it and uh, let them get on with the job i imagine the the other side of that is it must have driven more business if you'll pardon the pun to the company so in some ways it's a sort of swings and roundabout situation yeah i mean that's a difficult one because it's very difficult to gauge that i don't think it's quite as obvious as people saying i saw the tv show so so i want to buy one it certainly raises the profile and i think um electric classic cars has a good uh, image uh, profile in 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 the business business and worldwide really i think um the largest um converter of classic cars to electric in the world so you know it all adds to the to the brand and and, and the um uh, you know the profile imagine yeah well it certainly looks like a fun place to work if you had to pick out one car that's been converted in your time with the company what would you say is your favorite well i think that's the one behind us which is the batmobile the e9 bmw um csl and that's a a very very striking looking car um and uh, my my main image of that is driving down the road in it if you do a sort of road test in it everybody stops it's just gets so many looks people stop in their cars and let you out of junctions and wave (laughs) and you know you see so many near accidents with people not looking where they're going so that's probably my favorite because i quite like the fact that it's so in your face it's quite something to be allowed out of a junction in a bmw these (laughs) days really no it's an awesome looking thing and again i remember seeing it it's it's wonderful any plans for the future what have you got coming up on the youtube channel um, on the YouTube channel, obviously, we, we, like I said, we're trying to chronicle all the cars that come through, the in- interesting ones. So I'll give you an idea of the cars that are in the workshop at the moment that we're, we're featuring. The first one is um, Testarossas, or Tesla Rossas, as we're referring to. <laughs> There's two tes- Testarossas in the workshop at the moment that are getting converted to Tesla Rossas. Um, we're cr- we're going to do a series on that. So we've done the first uh, instalment of that, which was a video showing what it was like when it had the petrol engine in. So we took it for a spin in the petrol engine we then did a video of us stripping out the uh, the dirty smelly stuff and then we'll sort of show the conversion as it goes so there's a series on the testarossas there's also a t- series on a race car build we're doing um i don't know if you've if regular sort of viewers will will know that um moggy richard the boss has a super beetle which was featured with guy martin and that'll do not to 16 2.5 seconds it just wasn't fast enough <laughs> so it just didn't have enough power so uh, we've got a a a race car build that we're that we're doing a series on um, and I think we're on sort of I don't know the second or third installment on that where we've sort of put in dual Tesla motors in so it's going to be four wheel drive the ultimate uh, um, aim for it is to have a Tesla played motor in it so it'll be a thousand horsepower four wheel drive 
monster. <laughs> so if you thought 2.5 seconds not to 60 was quick, I don't know how on earth we're going to measure this new one. But uh, that'll be quite interesting for people to watch how we do the technical side and how we fit the motors in and, and that kind of stuff and test it. We'll be glued to it. We'll be liking and subscribing and um, checking out what you're up to in the future. Thanks very much, Tim. Really appreciate it. Thank you. On the L Charge company stand uh, with Justin and Natasha, and they have a very interesting product. And um, we were sent the details. It's an off-grid charging system that can either be installed as a permanent installation at places which don't have access to the the three-phase mains that you really need in order to charge a car quickly, or you can take it out to people who've broken down or people who need uh, on-site power. Um, I imagine the possibilities are endless for this. It is. So we've actually covered you know, a lot of bases by going mobile as well as with the static unit. When we say static, it's still very much flexible to be moved because there's no grid connection there whatsoever. So it is grid de- um, independent. Um, so with that, you know, we can service all markets. So on the mobile side, if a vehicle's stranded, we can get out to them and help them with that last mile charge towards their nearest fueling station or electric vehicle charging hub. And then on the, on the static side, we're really looking at a commercial proposition there for large fleet operators that needs you know sort of that last mile charge um, and a very fast last mile charge but also we're looking at strategically placing that in in strategic hubs to form charging hubs that's you know ultra fast charging hubs which is very much needed in the UK at the moment in terms of hitting those targets that we need to get to by 2035. The term range anxiety is one that we're all familiar with and I imagine that's a market that you're absolutely going to be tapping into. Yeah so the beauty about our solutions are well the one is that they're very scalable but on the mobile side we can deliver an upward charge of up to 130 kilowatt and on the static solution side depending on the size of the station itself we're talking ultra fast charging of an excess of 250 kilowatt per charging station so that's a very quick charge um, and the key thing for us is really around the charging duration we we aiming to in the future you know really bring about that charging a charging proposition whereby you know making electric vehicle charging at the same time as what it takes to actually fuel a traditional house vehicle now. We really want to make that transition quick and efficient for, for our EV drivers and subscribers. I think that's something that you will be very popular for saying. I mean, certainly being able to recharge an electric vehicle in the same time it takes to recharge a traditionally fueled one, I think once that is cracked, that's basically electric cars are the future because it's the convenience of being able to turn up at a petrol station, fill up in five minutes and go. So, yes, uh, you know, in terms of the technology we have now, we can deliver that ultra-fast charge, but we, I think where the limitation still is is on the vehicle side and what they can accept from a DC charging perspective. So as vehicles will you know, emerge, new models come out where essentially they can accept higher levels of DC charge, we'll be able to match that. And that, that will bring down the duration of the charge for most EV drivers. And that's where we're aiming to get to in the next few years as vehicle technology advances. Knowing that there are going to be companies such as yourself who are there to help people who run out um, and are also able to provide uh, the charging structure for people who aren't fortunate enough to live in cities and towns where there is charging infrastructure, um, I think that's definitely got to be a good thing. I think what really makes us unique from you know anyone else out there is really the turnaround time. We can actually commission a unit and get it up and ready within a day. 
as opposed to, you know, if you're looking at some of the more constrained areas, the sprint capacity and reinforcement requirements, that can take anything from up to 12 to 18 months to get a proper solution in place for EV drivers. I understand that later in the year the idea is that you launch here in the UK, but you've also got plans to uh, launch overseas as well? Yeah, so at the moment we're very much focused on the UK. We're going to be launching our first mobile van here in the UK this summer. And then we, at the end of summer we're going to be increasing our fleet of mobile vans in and around the Greater London area. So they're really going to be servicing individual EV drivers that don't have um, off-street parking and that battle to find charge points to be able to charge up overnight or essentially you know, during the course of their, their day or even en route. So that's really much on that last mile charge. And then on the other side of it, later on this year, so in Q4, we aim to you know, commission our first static units out there in um, strategic areas, so along major motorways. And into Q1 and Q2 next year, we plan on ramping up quite dramatically in terms of the areas and the sites that we're at. Mainly, mainly focused on the retail um, hospitality sector and then moving into commercial as well um, with some of the key negotiations that we have on the go at the moment too. Before Dave continues at Fully Charged, you might like to know that L-Charge have got in touch since that interview to say that they're looking for volunteers for the test phase of their mobile EV charging service in London, which will take place over the summer. If you'd like to get in touch with them to find out more, follow the link that's within the show notes or on the episode page on the UK Motor Talk website. I'm here on the Citroen stand with Kiana and we're looking at the incredibly cute Citroen Amy. Um, this is due to be released end of the month, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we've been told. Um, things can obviously move and change, um, but we're expecting it to be the end of the month, hopefully. And has it been popular? Have you got many on the waiting list itching to get their hands on the keys? So popular. Um, yesterday, I think we had five people put deposits down. So it's a £250 refundable deposit. Um, it's been the most popular car on the stand, to be honest. Yeah. I'm not surprised. It, it really is just so different. I mean, Citroen have a history of making cars that look different. And it's so nice to see them carrying on with that. There was a, there was a phase where Citroens did look a little bit like sort of warmed over Peugeots <laughs> for obvious reasons. But to see this, this is if this is the new design language, um, we're obviously fans. Um, how much is it? So we're hoping, again, the figures haven't been exactly confirmed to us yet, but we're expecting it to be starting from just over 6,000. Um, in France, it's retailing at ju- uh, 7,000 euros, so we expect it just over the 6,000 mark. So you can get three spot, um, spec models as well. So, What sort of range can you get from one of these on a full charge? So range is 43 miles, three hours to charge it. It comes as a standard two-pin plug, but you can adapt that to a three-pin pin um, 28 miles an hour top speed as well and i think i'm right in saying that uh, a bit like the twizzy you can register this as a quadricycle absolutely yep you can have it on a moped license so 16 year olds can drive it with a full am license um, and you're good to go can't wait to see them on the road thank you ever so much so i'm outside here at the uh, great wall motors aura cat stand and nick is here from Aura. Tell us a little bit about the car. What is the Aura Cat? Great Wall Motors is basically the parent company for the brand. Um, Aura is going to be the pure electric car brand for Great Wall Motors. So it's GWM Aura. And today, today we're here at Fully Charged just doing the first public debut of the vehicles. So no one's actually ever seen them in the flesh before. They've been online. But yeah, today is the first time people can actually see them, sit in them, you know, touch and feel. Um, and yeah, so today we've got two tie models. So actually the they're not UK spec. We've still got to confirm uh, UK pricing and specification. But what you can see here today, they'll be uh, pretty close to what we're going to have in the UK. 
they are cute little cars. They really are. I mean, I, we've spoken about them, as, as I said on the podcast. There are elements of quite a few cars that we were spotting, but that isn't a criticism. That's very much a positive. It's, it's got so many nice design elements. If I had to put money on one of them, I'd say there are hints of hints of new Mini about it, and it's a similar size, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, it's sometimes a bit deceiving. Um, in photos, it can look a bit smaller. You know, when I first saw it on photos, I was thinking sort of Honda E-Size, Fiat 500, but actually it's more in line with ID3. So it's kind of that mid-size uh, sort of family car. Um, and yeah, and one of the designers was actually ex-Porsche. So you can kind of see some of that coming through in the design. It's very characterful. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe you could describe it as cute and yeah, a bit, a bit different and a bit fun. It's playful. playful. Perhaps that's the word. Cute playful. perhaps yeah. sort of sells it short. Yeah. Playful. It, it really is a great looking car. It's substantial, but it's not overly big. What, what's the sort of market? Obviously the ID3, that's the market, the, the Mini. Without obviously going into too much detail because you don't know and can't say, yeah. is it going to be pitched perhaps at a similar price or will it be looking to come in lower? Yeah, so we know that from, from launch we're going to have a really strong specification on this vehicle. It's going to be really highly specced. Um, obviously we can't confirm like exact pricing right now for the UK, but we're, we know that at launch we'll have something that qualifies for plug-in car grant and the cutoff point for that is 32000 so that's kind of just a ballpark for where we're looking to, to enter the market at in terms of price. And just a little bit about powertrains. Will there be a number of different performance specifications available with the car? So I can talk to you about the tie specification model, uh, tie models that we've got here today. Uh, there's two battery options, so a 48 kilowatt hour and a 63 kilowatt hour battery. Um, the former offers about 200 miles of range, the latter is about 260. So we don't know exactly what we're going to get in the UK, but uh, that's kind of what we've got to work with. And it's definitely generating a huge amount of interest. You must be really quite buoyant about that. Yeah, I mean, the reception so far has been amazing. You know, uh, everyone's kind of come on the stands, um, said how good it looks. And that's what really today is about, just letting people uh, have a look around it and getting like their first impressions um, without going into too much detail. But yeah, like I say, it's all about just coming and seeing it and uh, yeah, getting first impressions. Well, I know there's myself and at least another one of our team is itching to get behind the wheel as soon as we can. So we'll be uh, we'll be keeping our ear to the ground and looking forward to the end of the year. Thanks very much, Nick. So, from the cutting edge of technology and brand new, not yet released electric vehicles, we change the pace and turn back the clock a few decades. Morgan have been making cars since 1910, and the cynical amongst us might suggest that things haven't changed very much in all that time. To have our views corrected appropriately, we caught up with members of the Morgan Sports Car Club down in Sussex. My name is Geoffrey Deer and I am the organiser of this event to Wings Museum. What the event was today was lots of Morgan cars arrived and it made us all smile. Yes, well I think there were about 25 or 26 different types of Morgans and Morgans, some of the Morgans were probably 40, 50 years old and some were a year or two old. So you had a huge variation in the types of Morgans that were built and uh, they were built, Morgans were built of wood since the Second World War um, because of course steel was very difficult to get hold of. So there's some link between the traditional English sports car, uh, Morgan, and actually what is on show here at Wings. So you say there are lots of different kinds, why do they all look very, very similar? Yes, <laughs> well, 
I think it's because Morgan started off uh, making three-wheelers. And there weren't any three-wheelers here today. There weren't, any three, 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 there weren't any three-wheelers, but you could actually buy a brand-new three-wheeler Morgan still. cost about £40,000. Um, but they started off as three-wheelers and progressed um, in the 30s, 20s and 30s into four-wheel cars as well. But that tradition remains. And if you saw a Morgan built in 1925, 1930, 35, you'd instantly recognise it as a Morgan. So there were certain things that they've decided, uh, they kept. One was the cowling and the broad style of the car. But generally speaking, there are three types of Morgans. One... Um, with usually about a 1600cc engine, uh, sometimes two seats, sometimes four seats. Then there's something with a little bit more engine power, which is a two-litre one, and the big engine one, which is four litres. But basically, Morgans hand-built the cars. So they build the superstructure, they build uh, the chassis and the floor, and the floors are wood, by the way, ship's wood, and the whole infrastructure is uh, um, uh, birch wood, uh, they use aluminium and steel in the construction. So what they've managed to do is build an array of cars that uh, reflect, I suppose, the personality of people who are uh, by them. Although I must say, it, about 75% of their production goes abroad, and they only make about six or seven cars a, a week anyway. But they like the traditional methods, and they still keep to those traditional methods. And they just now, as a style of car, represent, I suppose... Um, the history of uh, British motoring. And I mean, as beautiful a British sports car as you can really drive. Yeah. Yes, they're not built for comfort. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of hats being worn today. <laughs> yes, so you can pay an awful lot of money for a brand new one, but you'll still get wet if, uh, if, if it rains. A lot of the suspension system is still uh, based on designs uh, before the Second World War, sometimes even the First World War. And uh, so you will not buy one for comfort. Um, but you will buy it for the originality and the fact that it is handmade. And that's an important factor. So completely different skills you'd imagine to normal car making skills in that wood is involved yeah. in, a, in a structural sense rather yeah. than just in a very, very thin layer as a veneer. Yes, <laughs> that's great. So, so that they didn't start with uh, wood, but they um, did have to go there be, uh, uh, before the Second World War. And they've kept to, to that. So you can pay £100,000 for a brand new Morgan and still have it made of wood. I said to somebody once, the floor, gosh, it's just wood. And they said, don't worry about the floor, it's ship's wood, and it will not deteriorate. Worry about other parts of the car. <laughs> yes, well, well, I'd imagine that is with any British car. <laughs> Rust, I would imagine, over the years has been more of an issue than, than the wood. Yes, um, uh, as I said, uh, I think earlier that the cars are usually made of aluminium or steel. Yeah. Um, they are generally looked after, although they don't take too kindly to the sea and sea air that doesn't help them at all and what happens with them is that probably after about 20 to 30 years a lot of people then will have them renovated and once they're renovated they've got another 20 or 30 years so it is not uncommon to find a Morgan of 40 or 50 years old that might have only done 15 or 20,000 miles. So it's not the mileage it's just the age. And, and something people have and they pass on to the next generation they, to enjoy. They, they, they often do. And I suppose from a commercial point of view, because of the uniqueness, the value tends to be 
pretty stable. Mm. So my car is 40 years old. The price that um, I bought it for was the same as the previous owner. It was the same as the previous owner, which was when it was brand new. Yeah. So from that point of view, it's quite it's it's proved to be a decent investment. But people buy them for the fun, and because they're quirky, and because um, they just like traditional things. Lots of fresh air. Um, <laughs> so, so your car is 40 years old. What? How would you describe it? An old lady. <laughs> um, you take a look at you think, is this going to get me from A to B? <laughs> but it always does. Always does. And uh, But I know that I have to look at the weather and think, is it going to rain or not? So, for example, if it is going to, if I make a wrong judgment uh, and it suddenly pours with rain, then it could be at least 20, 25 minutes before I can get the hood on. And if it's the winter time, I can't get the hood on. You get wet. <laughs> None of these jobs are quick either, are they? <laughs> no. So, so what, what model is it? Mine is a, a called a Morgan 4-4, 1600cc, and it is four seats. And that must be quite rare, I would imagine, yes. in amongst most of them, which are two. Yes, they don't make four seats anymore. And at the time, I think they felt that it would be ideal to take children to school in the back seats. Except that what they didn't tell the children is that your head would be at least six to nine inches above the front windscreen. So anything more than 20 miles an hour and you would get blown to death <laughs> in the car. They, were, they would arrive at school invigorated by the fresh air again, you see. They would. And, and the funny thing was that the magazine advertising them back in the 80s actually depicted that. A lady <laughs> driving the car with two kids of about uh, eight or nine years of age in the back seat, looking all very happy. Was it moving at the time? <laughs> it, no, it wasn't moving at the time. No, that's great. So, you've come to visit Wings today. Yep. What do you think of the place? I think it's quite unique. I think um, it's one of these places that a lot of people would see the signs and say, Wings, what does that mean? Um, and then I must go and visit, but possibly don't. So coming in an organised group uh, encourages people uh, to look. And I think it's uh, a different museum because it also tries to put uh, the human picture together with the um, uh, parts of, uh, of these aircraft. And that makes the stories uh, very poignant. Mm. So certainly every part has a story behind it yeah. and it is hopefully illustrated in some yeah. way. Yes, that, that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, and I think that makes it um, a, a really interesting um, uh, type of museum. And I hope it goes from success to success because uh, let's not uh, underestimate the costs of running something like this, the people involved and their volunteers and they have to give a lot of their time. And some of these people uh, have really great expertise and you can see the plans that they're working on, that they really are experts in engineering and, and, and building uh, the, uh, aeroplanes are complicated. So it's really uh, an expertise um, uh, quite unique. Uh, really impressed. I think everybody enjoyed it. They loved, loved the occasion and um, it was enjoyable for all. You can find out more about the Morgan Sports Car Club at morgansportscarclub.com and the Wings Museum at wingsmuseum.co.uk. Now another museum that we have wholeheartedly supported is Brooklyn's Museum, based at the world's first purpose-built motor racing circuit at Weybridge in Surrey. Over the years we have all become regular visitors, and back in 2007 we joined the celebration of the site's 100 years since the circuit was built. Now, in 2022, on Tuesday 17th of May in fact, 
we will witness another Brooklyn centenary. And you're all invited too. Hello, I'm Beatrice from Brooklands. My official title is Interpretation and Programmes Officer. So I work with the Engagement and Heritage team on various events around the Brooklyn site and get the site ready for all of our wonderful visitors. And we're here at the wonderful site, Brooklyn's today, uh, and it is a jolly pleasant day. And uh, hopefully this weather will hold because in only about 10 days time, there's a very special centenary event happening. Yes, absolutely. So on Tuesday, the 17th of May, we will be celebrating 100 years to the day when uh, Ken Elm Lee Guinness achieved the uh, land speed record here at Brooklyn's. It was the last time uh, to have been done on a closed circuit. And we're celebrating that with the actual car that made the record. Uh, It will be coming down from the National Motor Museum in Bewley for the day. And we'll be doing some demonstrations on our finishing straight here here at Brooklyn's. So this car that's coming down, what what kind of a car is it? It's a rather special car. It's from the 1920s, so 1921 Sunbeam, so Sunbeam Motor Company, which was designed and engineered by their chief uh, engineer, Louis Coatlin. It's been restored um, by the wonderful team at the National Motor Museum, and they're working in uh, kind of cooperation with us to put this event together. It's incredible. It's a wonderful blue bird car. Uh, So once it did the record here with Ken Elmley Guinness. It went on to be bought by Malcolm Campbell, who many of you will know of. He's an incredible racer and land speed record holder. He took on the car and, and kind of repainted it, uh, remodelled it. And um, oh, we hear a train in the background there, so that's um, that's good. Uh, so we've got the car coming and. Um, as well as that, we've going, we're going to recreate a specific image that was painted of the record of the car and Ken Elmley Guinness on the railway straight with a steam train passing by. The painting was sort of to show this car is of its day was such a high technological beast um, that it could beat a steam train, which of course at that time was was quite astonishing. The thing to do. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it will be um, an early recreation of that image, which will be happening on the railway straight before we open at Brooklyn's. Is there a steam train coming as well then? We do. We have the Mayflower locomotive, which has been organised and it will go along the London to Woking line and there will be a number of passengers on that steam train who will then be coming to Brooklyn's um, to celebrate the day on the site. Wow, so it's a a lot of planning there, just (laughs) being able to put a train on a bit of normal track these days, isn't it? Yes, they've um, the the company Steam Dreams, who are also working with us on on this event, uh, have done an incredible job of being able to um, book out that main line at quite a peak time. <laughs> um, so we've that's coming through around nine thirty ish before we open, and we'll get the sunbeam down onto the railway straight, which is where the record happened. Getting that photograph for various press teams and, and registered VIPs, and then all of those guests will be coming back to Brooklyn site for the day to start for our general visitors at 10. So as a general visitor, what will I see? (laughs) So if you come to Brooklyn's on the 17th, uh, we've got lots of demonstrations. We've got about nine land speed record related cars that will be here on the day, including the Napier Railton, um, which is part of the Brooklyn's collection. We've got the Beast of Turin coming um, and various other well-known land speed record related cars. They will all be running on the finishing straight at Brooklyn's at around 12 o'clock. And we've also got a talk happening members of the National Transport Trust have been helping us put together this day and um, we've got a member representing them, Oliver Heal, who wrote the Louis Coatlin biography 
He will be speaking about the history of the car and, and, and the event. We've then got two representatives from the National Motor Museum who will talk about the restoration of the land speed record car, the Sunbeam 350. So that's all happening on the day. And there'll be various things going on. So we, we've got a Sunbeam cafe here on site. They'll be doing um, kind of specific recipes and, and, and menu, uh, all to do with Sunbeam motors. And the Sunbeam motor register, uh, they're all coming along with their Sunbeams that you'll be able to see on display display on site. Brilliant. I mean, it, it sounds like a good day, even if I wasn't coming to watch the bits early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it will have lots going on throughout the day. So whether you're coming from 10 o'clock as a general visitor or, you know, as an enthusiast, you're coming to see that recreation of the image. Uh, I really recommend kind of coming along and, and purchasing a ticket and getting into sight and seeing that demonstration. So as well as a motoring enthusiast, if one is, I don't know, some kind of train spotter, uh, can I see the steam train come past? Yeah, so we, we will have um, kind of the ability to park in our general visitor car park from around nine o'clock and you'll be able to wander along over to the railway straight uh, and see the, the steam train go past. As I say, the, the ETA of the train will be around 9.40, although there'll be areas specifically dedicated to our VIP guests and registered guests. You can kind of come along and, and, and park up and, and wander across and, and see the action. And let's be honest, the Mercedes-Benz world is always nice to visit as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Although not on that day, obviously. Yeah, no, come to Brooklyn's. <laughs> so one more thing then. Who are the special people who are driving these cars? Because uh, they're not the same to drive as uh, my normal Astra, are they? <laughs> No, they're not. So we've got a lot of the owners uh, of these cars that are excited to be a part of the day. And, and we've got some uh, wonderful guests who are grandchildren of those that were involved in the record. Um, we've got Sir Ken Elmley Guinness, who is uh, Ken Elmley Guinness's grandson as well. Uh, and he will be part of the image as, uh, and sitting in the car and we'll get some photographs with him. So we've got lots of Landspeed record related people around on site. Don Wales, who is Malcolm Campbell's grandson, he will be here as will other VIP guests. And there's another train going past. One last thing that I didn't ask earlier, and I really should have done, what was that land speed record? How fast was it? So at the time it was 133.75 miles per hour. Wow. Um, obviously now to modern standards that doesn't seem that fast, but um, for the day it was absolutely incredible. Um, and the, the car itself, the 350 Sunbeam, went on to break three other records under Malcolm Campbell's drive. <laughs> But we won't be doing that on Tuesday. No, it won't be doing that speed, unfortunately. But we'll we'll see what we can do with uh, with the car and the gearbox specifically <laughs> that's been restored. For more about the Brooklyn's Centenary of Speed event, check out brooklynsmuseum.com. And of course, keep in touch with us at UK Motor Talk via any of the socials or email podcast at ukmotortalk.co.uk. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.